This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The biggest killers of police officers and firefighters in Colorado aren't the criminals they go after or the fires they put out. No, the biggest killer is suicide. Between 2004 and 2014, three times as many cops died by their own hand than in all other line-of-duty deaths. That shows how much stress they're under. Well, a new survey reveals a serious lack of access to mental health care and a lot of stigma around getting help. Rhonda Kelly is here. She spent 17 years as a firefighter and paramedic in Aurora. She's now with Responder Strong, which conducted this survey. And Rhonda, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ryan. More than 400 people across the state responded to this. And these are largely leaders of fire departments, police departments, even dispatch centers. As a first responder yourself, what surprised you most about their answers? Well, we were overwhelmed with the number of responses. More than 55 percent of the leaders that we queried responded to the survey. There were some shocking pieces of information in there. For instance, only 11% of leaders feel that their emergency responders are comfortable talking about their own mental health. Only 11% even say that their staffs feel comfortable talking about the subject. Yes. And a lot of our training, and I believe this is what it points to, when we do train on mental health, it is oriented at our clientele, the patients we encounter, the citizens we encounter. We've been really remiss in focusing on the mental health and sustaining healthy mental functioning and emotional functioning among among responders themselves. So the nature of the job is to think about the mental health of others, those you encounter on the street and not necessarily to turn inward. Exactly. And oftentimes when we encounter a citizen who's in mental health crisis, it is a full-blown crisis, which inadvertently increases responder stigma against uh, admitting that he or she is struggling with mental health issues. Oh, interesting. That is, if I reveal to my friends or family or colleagues that I might be struggling with depression or anxiety, they're going to equate me with some of the more... Uh, colorful or radical things I see on the on the beat. Exactly. And I think that's especially true when we talk about admitting emotional or mental impairment to coworkers who now have this internal vision of what mental illness looks like. And in fact, it is one extreme end of the spectrum, not the whole spectrum. It's so interesting because I think of law enforcement, especially these days, as being almost the front line of mental health care. Uh, And it's almost counterintuitive to think that there would be so much stigma in those ranks. And I think the stigma, and that's a great observation, I do believe that law enforcement in particular are the front line. But on all of the emergency response realms, EMS, fire, law enforcement, and dispatch, there is this pervasive culture that sees admission of emotional or mental impairment as a sign of weakness. And I believe that is really the big barrier for emergency responders. Is there any sign that that's changing? Yes. I I think uh, about the aftermath of 9-11, for instance, and how the the country really came around its first responders and it was acknowledged that they might be struggling. Was that not a sea change in, in some regards? Absolutely. And I do agree with you that that was one of the first turning points in our cultures. One of the great things it did was it started to normalize 
the emotional mental response to significant calls, which was beautiful. That was great. It started the ball rolling. Significant calls. Significant. Almost once in a lifetime, one would hope, kinds of calls. Exactly. And I believe it wasn't until later, probably about 10 years later, when we started to acknowledge the suicide statistics and started to recognize that suicide is indeed the leading occupational killer of emergency responders, that we realized it doesn't have to be that one event, that individuals can still be impacted by a cumulative series of, quote unquote, smaller events. This is something you heard in the survey. If you're just joining us, we're talking about a survey of law enforcement and first responders, uh, leaders of police departments, fire departments, dispatch centers. Uh, In regards to mental health, uh, this survey was circulated all around Colorado. and, And some of the responses really did reflect this idea that mental health professionals, counselors are sort of sent in after a a mass event like the theater shooting in Aurora, for instance, or 9-11, which we just mentioned, but that there's less support for that day-to-day stress that law enforcement, that firefighters uh, are under. Absolutely. And that was something we heard from leaders across the state, that in times of crisis, everyone rallies to support but in the day-to-day, there is very little support. There, uh, the need was identified to establish a pool of mental health professionals who are culturally competent, who understand not only the cultural impacts on responders, but also understand the uh, underlayment of cumulative traumatic exposure. There's a lot to, to uh, pick apart there. So um, you say culturally competent. So one thing you heard from the survey is that uh, police officers, firefighters, paramedics, they don't often feel like counselors understand their professions, what they do. And so they sit down perhaps for therapy and just don't feel like they're talking the same language. Is that right? Yes. And one of the the responses we hear from responders and that we also heard from leaders is it's not uncommon for a responder just to go to a a general therapist and to be met with a series of questions or to spend even sessions identifying what that individual does, why he or she was there, why they were doing what they were doing and what the job entails, never actually reaching the emotions that brought their responder in. Or the counselor doesn't recognize certain coping mechanisms, for instance, dark humor, Dark humor. Um, Yes. As a way of dealing with what they encounter. Exactly. Kind of along the theory that if you can't laugh about it, all you can do is cry about it. Um, So dark humor is is prevalent in the response world as a coping mechanism. And sometimes counselors misinterpret that and view it more as a character flaw than a coping mechanism. Is that something you experienced? I'd like to, to speak to your own experience as a firefighter and as a medic. First of all, did you feel the stigma? Absolutely. Uh, It is ingrained. And even though uh, I was a member of our peer support team, I was functioning as the health and safety officer for our department, and I was willing to help others um, deal with whatever they were struggling with, with no judgment, with empathy. When I started to notice the signs of myself, I realized how deeply imprinted I was with our culture, even though I consciously rejected it, and realized that Responders' first reaction when they start to sense um, depression, anxiety, uh, other post-traumatic symptoms in themselves is one of shame. And that's really destructive. Do you think there's a difference between how men and women deal with this on these forces? I think women in a certain 
vein are given a little more latitude to be emotional, to express what they're feeling without as much judgment. On the flip side, all of these professions are male-dominated. So women always have the greater fear, I believe, in the back of their mind that even though it's culturally more acceptable for me to admit um, that I'm emotionally impacted by a call, that it is going to be interpreted as a sign or evidence that women don't belong in this field. They're just not equipped for it. They're not tough enough. So it's a double-edged sword. Back to this idea that it can be the everyday encounters of police, of firefighters, that begin um, to build stress uh, and may lead to mental health problems. You you have a term for the folks that you encounter uh, out on the streets day after day after day. Folks you, you can't necessarily get long-term help for. Yes. Uh, the term we generally use for those is frequent flyers. Frequent flyers. People who rely very heavily on the 911 system, usually because they don't have other resources. They don't have insurance. They don't understand what resources are available out there. And 911 is the easy button. And how does that connect to first responders' mental health? It gets to be very frustrating, very demoralizing. You respond time and time again without seeing any significant positive change resulting from the energy and the efforts that you've put into this. And it can turn, it can in turn erode the morale of responders. Because you presumably get into this profession to help. And if you keep seeing the same person over and over again, who might be self-medicating or drinking too much or something. There's just this sense of what, what, what am I actually doing here? Exactly. Futility. Do you remember those frequent flyers? Oh, I do. They, um, they comprise a, a fair amount of our call volume. Um, How would you deal with those situations when your fundamental desire was to help? Usually in the group context, I come from the firefighting world. So there were four of us on the rig. Uh, We'd usually talk about it afterwards, laugh about it if we could, um, talk about it en route to calls. Oh, it's so-and-so. What's it going to be this time? Um, But ultimately, those are kind of ineffective coping mechanisms. And that just adds their small drops adding to the burdens of the larger calls, the traumatic calls, um, injured children, abuse, violence. um, All of these things take their toll. How big a priority is mental health now, particularly financially, uh, in police departments, in fire departments? And if a department spends a dollar on mental health, you know, is that a dollar that isn't spent on a new police car or fire equipment? Exactly. The need to better address mental health has been recognized. The financial prioritization, we're still not there yet. And that was something else that we heard from the leaders. I believe it was Uh, 46% of the leaders who responded stated they had no funds dedicated to mental health for their agency. But these are people with insurance, health insurance, right? They are. And oftentimes, as everyone else knows, it can be a long, long wait to get into a mental health provider going through private insurance. And then there's the potential to encounter a whole host of other issues, particularly the cultural competency piece that we talked about. The the speaking the the language of a first responder. And recognizing a trauma response for what it is and recognizing that it's not a a character flaw, that this is the accumulation of trauma in a responder. And then there's also the stigma. Many responders don't want to admit to their loved ones that they're struggling. They don't want to erode their self-image or their image among those that they care about. You also found that there is a difference between rural and urban access. It could be that the nearest mental health professional, if you're in a remote part of the state, is is an hour or so away. 
And even further, we heard from San Luis Valley in particular that their resources are down in Alamosa, and those resources aren't constantly in Alamosa. They can wait weeks at a time to get an appointment with a therapist. One of the other things we hear from leaders and from responders is that when a responder does reach out for help, that person tends to already be in crisis, and it's a very short window of opportunity. If we can't connect that person with the resources quickly, most likely that window is closed. And that may result in suicide. It may. Mm. You say how particularly the high-profile shootings, uh, disasters are portrayed in the media, that that can play a role in how first responders deal with those incidents afterwards. Give me an example of that. One of the first examples that jumps to mind is law enforcement officers who struggle with uh, media scrutiny afterwards. Sometimes the information's accurate, sometimes it's not. Um, They struggle with constant scrutiny from the public, whether it's an officer-involved shooting, was it excessive force or not, Was what was happening during a call. Um, And, you know, when I think of, gosh, I don't know, professional athletes being criticized in the media, you know, often the default response is to tell them not to read the papers or go on social media. Is, Is that advice that first responders get? It is. And that is the widely given advice. Yet in our modern day world, how do you avoid social media? If you're on Facebook, if you're on Twitter, if you're um, even just glancing through the news, likely you're still inundated by it. And it almost becomes the proverbial train wreck. It's hard to turn away. Responders want to know what's being said. It's it's good advice, but tough to, to take. You've had an incredibly varied career. I mean, besides your work as a firefighter and paramedic in Aurora, you worked as a psych ER nurse at Porter Hospital, even worked as an EMT on the ships that break up ice in Antarctica. Uh, When you look at this field, and and specifically the question of stigma, what do you think could most stand to change, and, and how would you change it? Our culture needs to change. That's the root of the stigma. And the way we at Responder Strong are focusing on changing our culture is doing it from within. We're relying very heavily on the power of personal testimonial. The people who speak that language. Exactly. Responders themselves and their advocates. Thank you for being with us. I appreciate it. Wonderful. And may I add just one little bit? Um, Uh, Very quickly. Okay. Responder Strong is housed at the National Mental Health Innovation Center. Indeed. At uh, CU Anschutz. CU Anschutz Medical Campus. And you can read more later today about this survey of first responders across the state at CPR.org. Indeed, a survey about barriers that first responders face accessing mental health care. There are a lot of dilapidated jails across the state, as we've been reporting in the past few days. Places where inmates don't get sunlight or fresh air or a regular bunk to sleep in. CPR's Allison Sherry finds there's one big reason it's so hard to upgrade these facilities. There's just no local cash. The first thing to know about the Sawatch County Jail is that it's in an old house. The sheriff used to live there back 30 or so years ago. A couple bedrooms are now sheriff's offices, storage closet. That's Captain Ken Wilson, who is in charge of this jail in the San Luis Valley. We make do with what we've got. We're doing what we can, and honestly, we're killing it for what we've got. Of course, you saw the restroom. That restroom still has a bathtub in it. Wilson says it's a challenge to keep his deputies safe and his inmates in custody. We had last year, we had a inmate jump through the window and run off. We got him back, but yeah. It was through one of these windows? Yep. 
It absolutely was. There is no outdoor space here, so the prisoners are shackled together and walked around the town's elementary school for fresh air. Crystal Knight's husband works at the jail. She's on a mission to try and build a new facility. They're not very secure. They could probably pick their locks and get out. They have had two escaped inmates so far. Boulder County District Attorney Mike Doherty visited the Sawatch Jail a few months ago. Doherty has been a prosecutor for 20 years and has been in infamous prisons, including New York's Rikers Island and San Quentin. What I saw at Sawatch was absolutely horrific. I've never seen anything like it before in my entire career. People are able to and have been caught slipping contraband in through the vent uh, that allow air into the facility, into the inmates. And there's no sunlight. And not only is it terrible for the prisoners being housed there, it presents a serious risk for the staff. While Doherty is shocked about the conditions in Sawatch, there are similar stories all over Colorado about broken down county jails. Facilities with no windows or working toilets, cells in basements. District Attorney Doherty says everyone should care about this. This is not a state prison facility where people are going to be serving long sentences or lifetime sentences. These are people who have not yet been convicted or are serving rather short sentences. So when we look at the recidivism rate in this state and we think about why is it that people go on to reoffend, I think we have to look at how we're housing them and treating them in the time when they're in custody. In Sawatch, the problems don't end with the jail. Right now, sheriff's officials say the department is both dramatically short-staffed and working for too little money. One of the administrators working in the living room has been there since 1979. She worked there back when it was an actual house. And she's only making $1,700 a month, though commissioners did just approve a small pay raise for her. Captain Wilson says they only have four deputies, and the county is bigger than Rhode Island and Delaware together. If you were to go for deputy per population... I'm sure we're understaffed. If you were to go deputy per square miles, we're absolutely understaffed. The county is also extremely poor. A quarter of the 6,000 residents live in poverty. And it has a small tax base. It only charges a 1% sales tax. Voters there have been unwilling to increase that for a new jail. Commissioners asked in 2016 and were turned down in that election. The legislature has also considered sending money to county jails, but not successfully. Knight thinks the county is on its own. Down here, we kind of get lost. Counties across the state have struggled with selling voters on tax increases to fund jail expansions or improvements, according to Allison Daly, a justice expert at Colorado Counties Incorporated. In fact, voters usually only approve new jails about 30 percent of the time, although the odds do get better if counties go to voters multiple times. I think there's probably a small a part of the population that thinks that they deserve the conditions that they're in. And I think there's also, you know, you'll hear stories on the news about, you know, like the Martha Stewart jail where people have televisions and they have iPads. And I think that sometimes that, that view gets popularized and then people think that jails look like that. And very, very few people have gone to their jails. And that includes even elected officials. In Sawatch, until Captain Wilson gets a new jail, he says he tries to treat the inmates well, given the dismal conditions. I'll, I'll open this up and make sure we get some fresh air going through here for him. It's literally the least we could do. I mean, we could do less, but that's that's not right. They have rights and they're, you know, they're people. For CPR News, I'm Allison Sherry. Methane. It's way more effective at trapping heat in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. And methane comes from a lot of things. Cities, cows, oil and gas operations. Now it looks like detecting leaks of methane from all those sources could be big business. And it's the subject of today's Disruptors, our series about entrepreneurship in Colorado. 
we are going to talk specifically about a venture from scientists at CU Boulder who worked with colleagues at NIST and NOAA. They're in a race to create the best technology to find methane leaks affordably and reliably. Caroline Alden is a research scientist at CU, and Greg Rieker is an assistant professor of mechanical engineering there. And welcome to the program, guys. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Nice to see you. Greg, why is detecting methane leaks a good business opportunity right now? It's interesting. So there's there's kind of two key drivers to it. Um, one is Colorado in particular has been a leader in uh, implementing regulations around methane and leakage from, from uh, the natural gas industry. And also there's safety concerns. So there was this big leak out at Aliso Canyon, which was uh, in California, few years ago, and uh, that ended up uh, evacuating an entire part of a city and costing a lot of money for the company that, that was responsible for the leak. So sort of two key drivers that are making making a business opportunity here. In detecting something that can't be seen with the naked eye. That's right. Yeah, yeah it's hard to find. Why would oil and gas operators be willing to spend money on this? Uh, in other words, is it regulation, as you say, driving the need to find and stop leaks or are other forces at play, market forces maybe? Well, yeah, there is some loss. Of, I mean, when they when they have leaks of natural gas going on, they're losing their product out of those out of those leak points. So they want to make sure to be keeping the product rolling down the pipeline. Um, and it's also a bit of a, a you know a public relations thing. They want to make sure that that everybody is comfortable with having oil and gas production in their state, and in particular on Colorado's Front Range, where you have uh, oil and gas development kind of butting up against expanding residential areas, people want to make sure that they're safe from these leaks and uh, that, you know, air quality is good. So there are, I think, a lot of reasons for these companies to want to be keeping an eye on okay, emissions. So some market forces, some regulations, some PR is what I think I hear you That's saying. Right. And and let's be more specific about the threats to people's health if too much methane escapes. What what are the threats? Is it just a question of explosions? Is it a question of what I breathe in or what? Yeah, so the the methane itself is not so dangerous to be breathed by by humans, but if it reaches a critical level, of course, that's when the explosions can happen. We've had some explosions here in Colorado that, that cost lives in the last couple of years. Indeed. Um, and then also there's there's some other compounds that are leaked out with the methane, and those can react with uh, car exhaust and sunlight to create the smog clouds that you see around the Denver uh, region. And, and so, underlying all of this as well is climate change. Exactly. Right. So methane, as you as you pointed out in the introduction, is a is a strong greenhouse gas. And so there's good reason to want to keep that from going into the atmosphere. All right. So there are teams racing to create the best technology to detect methane leaks. Uh, there are a few competitions going on nationwide, maybe even worldwide, to get scientists to focus on this. I understand you're using a laser that can detect leaks from miles away over a really broad expanse of land. Uh, and this is based on Nobel Prize winning science. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And it's Nobel Prize winning science from right here in Colorado, which I think is really neat. Jan Hall at University of Colorado originally came up with the technology. And then we've worked together with NIST over the last uh, decade, I guess, in, in terms of bringing that technology from sort of a very big instrument in the laboratory all the way out 
for the first time now into the field. Something you can, can tote be. around. That's right. And NIST is the lab, the National Institutes for Standards and Technology That's there right. in Boulder. Okay. And uh, it just briefly in layman's terms, how can a laser help detect yeah. methane leaks? So it's, it's, it's neat because it sort of turns the fact that um, methane is a greenhouse gas on its head. So methane is greenhouse gas because it absorbs infrared light very strongly. So what we do is oh. take an infrared laser send it out over these mile-long path lengths, and then we can see this very distinct uh, absorption signature sort of as a function of the color of the light that is unique just to methane. And so when we see that absorption signature on our laser beam, uh, we're able to tell that the methane is there and how much of it is there. But as I say, Caroline, this is a race. Other teams are coming up with other kinds of methane detection technology. What sets this apart and and how stiff is the competition? What are you worried about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's actually a really exciting um, problem to have so much competition that so many people are interested in trying to address this uh, important problem. But what we think our technology, where it really shines, is that um, we... I, I like that as a laser joke. Where, where <laughs> it shines. Okay. I didn't even notice. Um, <laughs> is that it's a, it's a continuous monitoring solution. So we can actually put this thing out in a field of wells or tanks or whatever types of oil and gas stuff you want to monitor and um, leave it out there all by itself. It can be m- monitoring the air and looking for leaks. And a lot of the other solutions require that somebody uh, get in an airplane and go fly by the leaks or, or go drive out to each wellhead and, and look at it with a, a camera that sees methane gas. Um, but we we think that um, it's important to have continuous monitoring for these type of types of emissions. Continuous monitoring. In other words, uh, a lot of the other technologies is a sort of spot check. I right, guess. like a snapshot and, and where we have kind of 24-7 uh, monitoring for leaks, in, which is particularly important because it's thought that uh, emissions from oil and gas methane emissions are not necessarily going on all the time. They can be really intermittent. So you wouldn't want to have a uh, point in time survey. Exactly. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And as part of our series about entrepreneurship in this state, the disruptors, we're talking about a, a kind of race to develop the best technology to detect methane leaks. And you're thinking, well, that that sounds exciting. Uh, well, there's a lot that uh, methane can affect, including climate change. It can affect uh, oil and gas drillers' compliance with the state. It can affect public health. So there are a lot of reasons that it's important to detect. And, and you said at the beginning of our conversation that, that Colorado is really one of the first states to regulate methane from oil and gas operations. And, uh, Greg, I know that a lot of that monitoring happens by the companies themselves. So presumably this is technology that you would sell to the industry? It's a little different than that. You know, the, right now the, the companies will go out and they, they're on their own in terms of coming up with a, a system for checking their own leaks. Our idea is more to take the technology and put it out there as a service for oil and gas because I think a lot of the companies would love – to have somebody else take care of this problem, mm. the, the monitoring problem for them. So okay. we're looking more at at how we can deploy the systems and run this as a service. And of course, the state does some monitoring, so there might be some That's public right. use for this as well. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, as I said in the introduction, methane comes from more than just oil and gas. I mean, it's everything from cows, you know. Yeah. Uh, to other aspects of agriculture. How else might it benefit humanity if we are able to better detect 
methane leaks. What are some other applications? Yeah, as you point out, this could be something where there isn't currently a market driver to be monitoring for methane emissions from from livestock, you know, feedlots or anything like that. But if there were ever to be a, a you know, a carbon tax or a, some sort of carbon, um, you know, reason to monitor for emissions of uh, also CO2 um, and methane. Uh, this could measure other gases, in other words. That's right. The laser also sees CO2. But um, even if we're just strictly talking about methane, if there were a carbon credit system or carbon tax where you'd want to keep track of emissions uh, for, from agriculture, also we've thought about you know early, early detection systems of methane emissions from such ecosystems as uh, like permafrost melting in the Arctic. So that's thought to be sort of a ticking time bomb in terms of climate change, where if if permafrost becomes activated, it could become a large source for methane to the atmosphere. Oh, I see. So as perhaps the environment degrades, it would release gases. And that's something that you could almost use as a warning system. Like an early warning system to to sort of monitor for for those types of environmental changes that scientists are, are keeping an eye out for currently. Any other uses? Defense, maybe? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the one of the other interesting uh, avenues for this technology is to be able to do standoff detection of of chemical and biological weapons. So the idea of a network uh, around a city that could be an early early warning of of people creating explosives or people deploying very bad gases. So uh, the technology is really flexible. It's flexible. It's a great great platform. Are there going to be winners and losers in this? Or do you think it's it's a question of there will be six or seven different ways of tracking methane and all of them might succeed to some extent? Yeah. So there's a, there's a, you know, a number of technologies and, and I think they all fit a very nice little niche. So our technology is great for continuous monitoring in dense areas. Other technologies are great for flying over pipelines and, and doing general surveys. So I think there are going to be a lot of winners, and um, and we hope that the oil and gas will also see this as a tremendous way to reduce their own costs. A lot of winners. How how incredibly hopeful you are as an entrepreneur. Thanks for being with us, both of you. Thanks Thank so you much. Thank you so much. You heard from Greg Rieker and Caroline Alden, scientists at CU Boulder. They worked with colleagues at NIST and NOAA to develop technology that detects methane leaks on a large scale, which they're now offering to the oil and gas industry, other industries as well, government entities under the name Longpath Technologies. We spoke to them as part of our coverage of entrepreneurship in Colorado called The Disruptors. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Snowboarder Amy Purdy of Silverthorne is now a silver medalist. She won in snowboard cross at the Paralympics last month in South Korea. She landed bronze four years ago in Sochi. Purdy is a double amputee. She lost her legs to a blood infection in 1999. Purdy wrote about her illness and what followed in a book called On My Own Two Feet, From Losing My Legs to Learning the Dance of Life. That's no doubt a reference to her appearance on ABC's Dancing with the Stars. In light of her latest Olympic achievement, let's listen back to our 2015 conversation recorded at the Tattered Cover Bookstore. You had been a recreational snowboarder, and pretty soon you start wondering, can I snowboard with both legs amputated? And so you turn to experts, to the Internet. And what was the answer? Had any 
previous double amputee, and I say that knowing you don't really like the word amputee. Right. Had you known of anyone who'd done this before, been able to snowboard uh, with both legs amputated? I didn't know of anybody with two prosthetic legs who snowboarded. Um, And just the reason why I don't like the word amputee, I just don't like labels. Because suddenly I was just a human and a normal person one day, and then all of a sudden the next day, you know, the doctors would come in and say, oh, they amputated your legs. Oh, the patient. And now you're an amputee. And all of a sudden, these different labels became attached to me that I, I didn't want anything to do with that. I thought I'm still the same person. I still have the same passions and goals and dreams. But yeah, so I knew I wanted to snowboard again right off the bat. And that became a huge motivator for me. And I had no idea how I was going to do it. I called every adaptive ski school in the country trying to figure out if they had ever heard of another double leg amputee snowboarder. And all I would get back is, oh, you should try to mono ski, you know, which is basically sit in a ski without your legs. And I just remember thinking, no, I want to use my legs. So that put me on a mission to figure out a way to do it again. And it was a fruitful path. You make using prosthetic limbs look easy today, but the technology (laughs) has hardly been perfect, which you discovered when you decided to go snowboarding for the first time after your illness. So read for us, if you would, about falling during that first attempt I think you're with your sister, Crystal, is that right? I am. Yeah, okay. My goggles went one way, my beanie went the other way, and my legs, still attached to my snowboard, went flying 30 feet down the mountainside. (laughs) Oh my God, I yelled as my sister came rushing over. I was seeing stars. When you fall off your board and your gear goes everywhere, snowboarders jokingly call that a yard sell. (laughs) And this was the ultimate one. Are you okay? Crystal asked. I think so, I said. We both laughed. People in the chairlifts above us stared down. One lady actually screamed, ah! (laughs) We were all in shock. I got back up on my feet long enough for us to get down the rest of the mountain, falling left, falling right along the way, but never again losing my legs. Once I made it to the bottom, we called it a day. I'd had enough. (laughs) So what is the difference between how you snowboard now and how you snowboarded then? So at the time, I just went snowboarding in my normal walking legs. And I realized that my ankles didn't bend. They didn't flex enough. And if your ankles don't bend, then your knees don't bend. If your knees don't bend, then your hips don't bend. It all goes together. And it felt like I was in a full leg cast. And I thought, if I can find the right kind of feet where there are ankles that bend a little bit more, then I'll be able to move better. And if I can find a way to keep these detachable body parts attached to my body, then that would be really good too. (laughs) So I kind of went on this mission, and that mission is still continuing, even to this day. Every time I'm out snowboarding, I'm constantly tinkering with my legs, trying to get them to feel the way that I know they're supposed to feel and move the way they're supposed to move. So does that mean you have legs for different uses? Like snowboarding legs, walking legs, square dancing legs? <laughs> pretty much, yes, pretty much. Although I've never square danced. Okay. But I would say salsa dancing legs, yes. <laughs> you can't have just one pair of feet that do everything or you would be all over the place because there's so many different ankle motions that have to happen. So for running, you have running feet. For snowboarding, I now have feet, which I call my snowboarding feet. 
they're random pieces and parts put together and I chop the toes off and stuff them into my boot and add duct tape and wood and there's rusted bolts keeping them together. And so that's my snowboard legs. I call them low tech, high tech. You write about the power of visualization a lot in this book. Just to, to read a quote, I visualized myself carving down the mountain, the powder beneath my board, the stillness of the trees, the wind on my face. Uh, how important is visualization to reaching a goal? For me, it's key. It's really easy to say I want to do something or I hope to do something and somehow just think that you'll get there. But for me, if I can visualize every step along the way, then most of the time I can either hit that goal or hit it exactly as I wanted to. Um, and so is there a ritual to that? Is it something you do before you go to bed or you, you try to do daily or... You know, at times it is. Um, say with snowboard competitions, I visualize the course. The, every course that we ride is different. Sometimes we just get a day to practice it. Some days we just get a few runs to practice it. And so if I can have it inside of my mind, inside of my body, and I can stand there with my eyes shut and go through every single feature of the course, every single motion that I'm going to make, then I know that I'm going to be able to do it. But for long-term goals, like when I lost my legs, you know, I didn't know what my life was going to be like, but I knew what I didn't want it to be like. I didn't want to be this girl who lost her legs that everybody felt sorry for. So I thought, well, what do I want my life to look like? And I wanted to travel. I wanted to snowboard. I wanted to somehow help other people through my journey. I felt that inside. And with that came this vision of me walking gracefully, helping other people through my journey and snowboarding again. And that vision was so powerful that I didn't just see it. I could actually feel it. I could feel the wind against my face. I could feel the beat of my racing heart as if it was happening in that very moment. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. I just knew that I was going to do it. I want to point to a really um, intimate moment in the book. You write about an old flame who came through town. (laughs) And I believe this was your first intimate encounter since losing your legs. And you were afraid he might reject you, but he didn't. It was so touching, but so personal. Did you struggle with whether to include that? You know what? I actually, I didn't struggle to include that. I knew that it was going to be really personal and and kind of vulnerable for me. But the reason I included that part was I have so many people who go through so many different challenges in their lives reach out to me, whether it's a male or a female. And one of the number one questions, actually this girl who just lost her legs cornered me in the bathroom at one point and said, how do you deal with dating? (laughs) How do you deal with telling this person that you like that you've got prosthetic legs, especially if they don't already know, if you're wearing jeans or something? How do you deal with that? And I've even met people who have gone on to have a relationship with somebody and their significant other didn't even know yet that they had a prosthetic leg. And I thought, how, you know, how sad to hide who you are. And so I wanted to include that for those people so that they could see my experience with it and kind of what I learned in that moment and how I dealt with it. We are listening back to my 2015 conversation with snowboarder Amy Purdy of Silverthorne. She just brought home a silver medal from the Paralympics in South Korea. But those weren't her first games. She medaled four years ago in Sochi. Back then, she was also competing on ABC's Dancing with the Stars with her dance partner, Derek Huff. Had you ever danced 
before, you know, I suppose with the exception of like wedding dancing or something. Um, no. 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 Well, no, I, I take that back. I did country clog dance when I was 12 years old with my sister. <laughs> but um, that's the most dance that I had experience in. I would go out with my friends and dance at clubs and, yeah, weddings. But um, I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. What were the challenges of learning to dance? This is, it's one more thing you're learning to do with, I guess, like a new, another set of feet, too? Yeah, I, I knew right off the bat that it would be a challenge. I had no idea if it was going to be possible or not. It's happening around the same time as Sochi, too. Right. So um, kind of crazy because the first Dancing with the Stars live show in front of millions of people was on March 17th. And my Paralympic snowboard race, the biggest race of my life, was on March 14th in Russia. Right, on the other side of the globe. <laughs> right. So I, um, I compete, well, when I was in Sochi, I snowboarded for four hours each morning, and then I would take two gondolas down, jump in a cab, head to the next town over, and dance for four hours each night with my partner, Derek. He had come to Sochi to dance with you? He did. That was the only way we could do it. The other dancers had maybe three weeks to prepare, and they were working every single day for those three weeks for their first dance. Derek and I had... Four hours a day for four days, and that's it. Is, is Dancing with the Stars live? It is. Oh, God, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what was that moment like when you're thinking you're probably jet-lagged? Oh, yeah. And you're doing something you really hadn't done much, and you're going to do it in front of millions of people. Yeah, I, I won a bronze medal in Sochi, And I literally went from the podium to an airplane. I traveled 24 hours. I stepped off the airplane, went right into the dance rehearsal studio where I danced for four hours that night. I tried to sleep that night, but the jet lag was way too bad. And before I knew it, I was live in front of a studio audience, four judges, millions of viewers, um, dancing the (laughs) (laughs) cha-cha-cha. And you made it to the finale. I did. And going in, you know, I had really big hopes for myself, really high hopes. I just didn't want to be the first one eliminated. (laughs) I thought I would be lucky if I made it through the first or second or third week. And 10 weeks later, I was dancing in the finale. I love this scene you describe in the book with your dance partner, Derek Huff. You both do something called stacking. And this is not a dance move. (laughs) What is stacking? So stacking, Derek introduced me to that. Um, During the dance that I did for my father, which was our contemporary dance, it was for most memorable year. And You dedicated it to him. We dedicated it to my dad because my most memorable year by far was the year that I went through everything. I lost my legs, I lost my kidneys, and my dad donated a kidney the week of my 21st birthday. And that's something that's really hard to say thank you for. But there's not a Hallmark card for it. <laughs> yeah, there's not, right. And uh, just, you know, to be grateful that somebody gave you another chance at life and they sacrificed themselves. And so going into Dancing with the Stars, I had no idea that I would have the opportunity to go that deep into my story and to be able to express myself in the way that we did in that dance. But you do something with Derek called oh, stack- stacking. Stacking, stacking, yeah. So... 
a few minutes before going on stage to do this dance. It was a very emotional dance. We, we couldn't get through a rehearsal without crying. We both would be crying. And if anybody came in to watch us, they would leave crying. And here we had to perform it, you know, live in front of millions of people. And Derek reminded me before going out that it was going to be very emotional. But you can use that emotion to kind of break you down or you can use that emotion to build you up. And so we did this exercise that he calls stacking, which is he put his hand over my heart and he he said, Amy, I'm so grateful to be here dancing with you. So basically we started stacking all the stuff that we were grateful for. And you would kind of go back and forth? Yeah, and then I would put my hand over his hand and I would say, I'm so grateful I get this opportunity to... Um, say thank you to my dad. And then he would put his hand, his other hand over my heart and he would say, I'm so grateful that we have this opportunity with Dancing with the Stars. And it was all just about finding all the things that we were grateful for, which empowered me and made me feel really strong versus weak with emotion. Well, let's talk about gratitude because there is just a huge theme of it in your book. And a, a couple of people on, on the Colorado Matters team read this book and we all just had this thought, like, how does she, how does she go through what she went through so elegantly? And I guess gratitude has something to do with it. Would, how do you answer the question for yourself? Absolutely, I would say gratitude has a huge um, is a huge reason why I am where I'm at today, and I'm I guess I'm able to be so. I guess, positive about everything I've gone through. However, I will say it's not always that smooth sailing. I mean, my Thank you for knows. saying that because... <laughs> thank you for saying it. It just makes you so much more human to know that you have bad days. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Are you kidding me? I have <laughs> absolutely. And I mean, not just bad days, but stressful moments, even getting ready to come here tonight. I was trying to change my shoes and had tools and, you know, changing things out and running late and changing legs and this and that. I mean, it's that much more stuff to think about. You only see what happens when I come out and I'm all put together. <laughs> but there's a lot of work that goes into, you know having bionic body parts and like 10 sets of them. And it was the same way with um, Dancing with the Stars. We had to get really creative with the types of feet that we used. We would overnight feet from my prosthetic shop just in the hopes that they would move the way that we needed them to. And um, they never really did, so we had to make them. I want to talk just a little bit about the nature of illness with you because I, I imagine you've thought a lot about this. Do you believe it was fate that you got sick? Hmm. You know, I, I go back and forth on that. There's times where I thought, actually, I said this early on. I said, well, this happened to the right person because I can handle this. And how I knew that I'd be able to handle everything that came my way, I, I don't know. But I felt it inside that I was going to be okay and I was going to figure it out. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, if it's fate. I know I, I recently went on a speaking tour with Oprah, and she talks about us being co-creators of our lives. Obviously, there's opportunities and platforms and paths that are laid out for us at times, but it's our choice if we're going to take those opportunities, if we're going to walk down that path. So um, as much as I feel like incredibly blessed for all the platforms and everything that has come my way, I also know that I've worked my butt off for each one of those things. 
That is dancer and Paralympic snowboarder Amy Purdy of Silverthorne. We spoke in 2015 in front of a live audience about her book titled On My Own Two Feet. Purdy scored a silver medal at last month's Paralympics. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.